are visiting with us this morning, we are studying uh, the book of Revelation, the Revelation to John this year as a church, and we're working our way through the second part of this book, chapters 2 and 3, a section that is called basically the seven letters to the churches. It is a series of letters written by Jesus himself to a series of churches in seven different cities, seven churches in seven different cities, all located in the area of Asia Minor, which today would be modern-day Turkey. This morning, we're looking at the fourth letter, the letter to the church of Thyatira. This is actually the longest of the letters written to probably the, most, the, the least known of the seven churches and the least significant of the seven churches, at least politically and historically, the church of Thyatira was almost relatively unknown, just like the city itself. In fact, Thyatira is unlike any of the cities we have been looking at so far. If you've been in our series, you know I've been, I've been comparing these ancient cities to what their modern counterparts might be like, so we get a sense of the culture and the vibe and the feel of that city. So if Ephesus might be an ancient version of a Los Angeles, and Smyrna, an ancient version of San Francisco, Pergamum, an ancient version of Washington, D.C., Thyatira would be like nothing of those political, economic, uh, cultural powerhouses. Thyatira, in fact, would be more like a Kansas or Omaha. No offense, Jayhawks or Husker fans out there, but that, that's how Thyatira would be. Thyatira would be a working class kind of city more than any of the others. They had trade guilds more than any of the other cities had trade guilds. As a matter of fact, Ancient discoveries of coins in the city reveal to us that they had trade guilds in tan of tanners, coppersmiths, potters, linen weavers, wool workers, bakers, and bronze smiths. You didn't live in Thyatira for culture. You didn't live in Thyatira to climb and get political power. You didn't live in Thyatira to manage someone's financial portfolio. You lived in the city if you could swing a hammer. You lived in the city if you could handle the heat of a bronze, uh, of a furnace from a, a blacksmith. You lived in the city because you could shape wool or bend leather. But Thyatira was also interesting for the fact that it was a sentinel town. What do I mean by a sentinel town? Well, remember in our study, each of these cities, the reason they, be, they flourished the way they did is that they had natural fortifications and protections that allowed that kind of thriving. So I've got some graphics here. I couldn't find a, a program that would give me a slice, a topographical slice. So I found one, so it's kind of wonky. So there you can see the city of Pergamum and a red dot of where the city was located. Pergamum in the Greek means citadel, and you can see as you would walk into the valley that the city was located high atop a mountain, almost impenetrable. Ephesus, likewise, was guarded by the Mediterranean Sea on the one side and mountains on the other. And so there was almost an impenetrable city as well. Unfortunately, Thyatira had none of these things as they were on the open plains, easy for any invading army to come and destroy. In fact, uh, and, and in fact, the city of Pergamum kept a garrison of soldiers in Thyatira not to defend the city from invasion, but to act as messengers to run back and warn its own citizens so that they could run and flee to safety while Thyatira was being destroyed. Over its history, Thyatira was ruled by nearly every ancient kingdom in that area at one point or another, its citizens merely being handed back over to one ruler or another successor like some property or cattle. Maybe we wonder that's why the citizens of Thyatira 
did not persecute the church of Thyatira. Unlike Ephesus or Smyrna or Pergamum, we have no records whatsoever of persecutions of Christians in the ancient city of Thyatira. Not at all. As a matter of fact, when you read this in verse 19, you get the sense that the church seems to be doing quite well. In some ways, the church, just like the city, was start, starting to finally get some traction and come into its own. By the time this letter of Revelation is written to them, Thyatira had experienced decades of peace. They were becoming well-known for their purple dyes and their bronze work. As a matter of fact, one of the first converts in the book of Acts, Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, was a merchant, a seller of dyes from the city of Thyatira. You might even say, this was now becoming an up-and-coming city, a great place for a church plant, perhaps. And the church was thriving. Jesus even says, your later works are exceeding even the first. So the challenge for the church in Thyatira was not hating the world around them for persecuting them, but longing for the world around them to accept them and include them. In that way, friends, the church of Thyatira might be more relatable to us than certainly the church of Smyrna, who endured such persecutions, or Pergamum. You see, they were not tempted to fear the world they lived in. They were tempted to love the world they lived in, maybe too much. They, like us, have needs, they have fears, and they have hopes. But in a broken world like we live, a lot of times our needs can lead us astray, can't they? Our fears tempt us to compromise. And we often place our hopes in the wrong things. So Jesus' message to this church in Thyatira, and really it's, it's a message to us, it was to let them know that he alone is sufficient to meet their needs. That he is the one that can remove their fears, and he's the one that can satisfy their deepest hopes. And so this morning, as we look at this letter, we're going to look at three things. The, the fundamental human need to belong, the paralyzing fear of being known, and our deep hope to be seen. So the need, our need to belong. You see, the Christians in Thyatira have the same problem that all people have. Let me put this thing. Sorry about this. Pushing the button. There we go. Thank you. Whoops. Let's back that up. Our need to belong. See, the Christians in Thyatira have the same problem that all people have. Alain du Botton, the um, British philosopher, he says that all people, all people have two great love stories running through the narrative of their lives. This is what he says. Every adult life can be said to be defined by two great love stories. The first, the story of our quest for romantic love, is well-known and well-charted. The second is the story for our quest for love from the world, a more secretive and shameful tale. And yet the second love story is no less intense than the first, no less complicated or important or universal. And its setbacks are no less painful there's a heartbreak here, too. The second love story, that second love story, our, our desire to find love from the world, our desire to be accepted by the world, to fit in by the world, that is the story of the church of Thyatira. It really, it could be the, the story of any church today. And as Lane Dupaton says, it, it is the story of everyone that is alive. 
to have this love fulfilled. You see, the Christians at Thyatira, they didn't face what they didn't face persecution or imprisonment or slander. They faced insignificance. They faced not mattering. They faced that they didn't have any meaning. Because of their association with Jesus Christ, the Christians in Thyatira ran the risk of being completely marginalized, completely ignored, completely invisible to their society. Now, in one way, as a city, they all felt that way. After all, they were the expendable sentinel town, right? Traded from one empire to another, owned by everyone, belonging to no one. But the Christians probably keenly felt this sense of, of drift, of not fitting in, of not belonging. Because to become Christians, they had believed in the Easter story that Christ had risen from the grave. And because of that, what he said about reality mattered. And that there were no other gods except he and he alone. And that brought to them a whole new worship and a whole new ethic of how they would live outside of that worship. And that new worship and that new ethic brought them into direct contradiction to the society around them. The, the new ethic that most, most obviously bumped up against society was their sexual ethic. A sexual ethic that taught that sex belonged only within the context of marriage. That it had a purpose fulfilled only in that context. And friends, those two beliefs, that there, was, there, was only, there were no gods, only one God, and that sexuality was designed for the covenant of marriage, that was just unheard of. This was a kind of ethics that nobody even thought of, and it brought them into direct contradiction to their society. You say, how did that happen? Well, you remember, we talked about the trade guilds. And these guilds would hold uh, monthly common meals, often honoring their patron deities. Imagine these, these trade guilds were, were kind of your, what we might call a networking lunch or a company dinner party. Except oftentimes they would end in temple prostitution. And the reason being is that as human beings enjoyed and celebrated their sexuality, the gods would be stimulated and respond in like and give a bounty of their gifts to all of humanity. So it was a natural thing to get together with the tr people in your own trade, in your own profession, to network, to meet the people of power, to get to know clientele, and then to worship the gods, to bless them by expressing their joy and their sexuality. Well, you can see just on those two levels how this made it really hard for the Christians in Thyatira, and as you know, Smyrna, and almost any ancient city to participate in some of the very fabric of their society. Well, this is exactly where Jezebel comes in. Look at verse 20. But I have, so I know your works, your love and your faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Now, Jezebel here, it is a title, it is a reference to an actual woman from the Old Testament. You can read her story in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 22. Jezebel was known for leading the people of God astray into false worship and idolatry in the Old Testament. And so her name, even, even to this day, we understand that term, right? Maybe, maybe we don't say it's so, so common, but there was a time when, you know, if you were, you know, they would say, oh, she's a Jezebel, right, kind of a thing. I mean, you all have heard that at some point, right? Maybe the older saints have. But we understand that she has become a symbol of, of worldliness, of compromise, and of immorality. And so whether or not uh, 
that we are talking about an actual individual or some group of individuals, or Jezebel is the term symbolically used of a teaching that was permeating the church, is not important. What's important is to understand the simply brilliant logic behind this teaching that caused the Christians to compromise. You see, and if you were last week, this is probably very similar to what we learned from the Nicolaitans, same kind of thing. You see, it taught a version of Christianity that allowed you to, to keep your faith, but also keep your place in society as well by attending these, these networking lunches and, and engaging in sexual immorality. And when you stop and think about it, it was actually quite brilliant. And very, you can understand why it was hard for the Christians to make sense of this from what, what Jesus actually taught, from what was being taught, and how it led them to compromise. It basically went like this. The idea was that if you really understand Christianity, like if you really get it, if you really understand what's going on, which is why, by the way, if you, you know the phrase, um, you would say something like the deep things. If you get the deep things of God, this is how this works, which is why probably in verse 24, Jesus is actually mocking them by calling it the deep things of Satan. But it went something like this. If you understood the deep things of God, well, you would know that idols are nothing. True. Right? That's what Paul taught in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, that there are no idols, that there are no gods behind these idols. There is only one God. So it was absolutely right. So if you really knew the deep things of God, you know that idols are nothing and our bodies are nothing. Notice what they did there. They would mix in something that was really true with something that wasn't true. It was a misunderstanding of what, what Paul talked about, what Jesus talked about, that our lives are hidden with him in, with hidden in Christ in God, and when he is revealed, we will be revealed as well, Colossians chapter 3, that Jesus taught that it was the spiritual, that the thing was actually the real thing that mattered. And so what some people thought was that, well, if the spiritual thing that matters and the physical doesn't matter, so whatever we do in our body, it doesn't matter. And so this is how the theory went. What's the big deal? What's the big deal to use our bodies, which are nothing, to worship gods that don't exist. What, 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 are we, what are we freaking out about? We're being overly legalistic. We're being overly dogmatic on this. This doesn't matter. What's the problem with using our bodies that are nothing to worship gods that don't exist by engaging in these things? And you can see how those two coming together would create a toxic combination of, oh, that does make sense. Oh, you mean... I can now belong. I don't have to be on the outside because of my, my Christian convictions. I'm being too legalistic. I'm being too dogmatic. Lower my sexual ethic. Get involved. Oh, I, I think I like that. But Jesus categorically condemns it. Look at, look at verse 22. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Th that does not get any more a stern rebuke. You can't get any more stern than that. Why? Well, but why does Jesus say that? I'll tell you, it's, it's the second love story. This is why Jesus, what's going on here, it is the second love story. It wasn't so much the deeds that they were doing, although sexual immorality is clearly wrong. It wasn't so much that the food sacrifice to idols was the issue. But what Jesus is getting at is what's the desire that's driving them? Why do you want these things? What is the, the fuel that's powering your engine to find every possible way to belong? You see, it wasn't the deeds, but the desires of the heart. That second love story. You see, the idol that was being worshipped here, it wasn't 
It wasn't Apollos. It wasn't Venus. It wasn't Dionysus. The idol that was being worshipped was significance, meaning, fitting in, recognition, status, acceptance, love from the world. That second love story that Dipaton talks about. And Christ wants to tell his church at Thyatira, if you only knew the one who accepts you, if you only knew the one who accepts you, you'd be free from these things. You wouldn't have to work yourself into the ground. You wouldn't have to be putting in all this overtime to get the, the symbols of your society that say that you've made it, that you've arrived, that you're somehow something. You would know that those things don't really matter at all if you knew that you belong to me. G. Campbell Morgan, he was a, um, a, a famed preacher in, in England in the late 19th, early 20th centuries. Actually, was a professor over at Biola University. Um, preached a sermon entitled, You Belong to the Infinite. He says this. It's, just, it's brilliant. You are to remember with the passion burning within you that you are not the child of today. You are not of the earth. You are more than dust. You are the child of tomorrow. You are of the eternities. You are the offspring of deity. The measurements of your lives cannot be circumscribed by the point where blue sky kisses green earth. All the fact of your life cannot be encompassed in the one small sphere upon which you live. You belong to the infinite. If you make your fortune on earth, poor, sorry, silly soul, you have made a fortune and stored it in a place where you cannot hold it. Make your fortune, but store it while it will greet you in the dawning of a new morning. See, Jesus wants them to know they do belong, and he sees them. He accepts them. The church of Thyatira belongs to him. Now, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But I think it's pretty clear what's going on here. And it's true of us, too, that we have a fundamental human need to belong. And the irony of this is the only thing that, that offsets our fundamental need to belong is our paralyzing fear of being known, isn't it? Jean-Paul Stratra, he, uh, a French existentialist, was famous for his quote saying that hell is other people. Anybody ever heard that quote? Yeah, it comes from Jean-Paul Sartre, the, the existentialist. It comes from his play, No Exit. And in his play, No Exit, three individuals are locked in hell for eternity. And what it is, is they're locked in a room with nothing but each other. And throughout the course of the play, it's revealed, they reveal that they thought hell was going to be full of torture devices, but they now realize what hell actually is. Being exposed, being in the presence of others with no filters, no escape, no facade, no images, no makeup to cover the blemishes, nothing to hide behind, just you raw being known. No filter. You see, on the one hand, we long to belong. In fact, we need to belong. If anything, this year has probably taught us the isolation that human beings, we lose a bit of our humanity when we're not embodied. We need to belong. But at the same time, we're afraid if people really know us, then they won't accept us. 
And so we have this almost bizarre, tragic, panic dance that we go through, doing everything we can to impress you about who I am, but at the same time hiding so you don't know who I actually am. And it's this dance, round and round we go. Isn't this what the modern anxieties are all about, right? We say it so much, it's an axiom. Spend money you don't have to buy things you don't need to impress people you don't know. It's like everyone, it's like we're all perpetually dating one another. Where I hope you like what you see, as long as you don't know the true me. And that's an anxious way to live life, isn't it? I need you, stay away, right? I want to be known, but not so much. We all long to be long, but we are paralyzed by the fear of actually being known because we're afraid we won't be accepted. Something the psychological literature shows us, and this is true of every culture, uh, of every economic status, of every language, one thing, there's there's a psychological or a hallucination we all tend to share. It's the feeling that we are being watched. Every culture and every time, there is this fear that we are being watched. And without exception, that, 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 that brings fear. It's never comfort as if we're being watched by the gaze of a loving mother or a benevolent grandfather. It's the fear that somebody is watching and they're going to discover the truth about us and we're going to be undone. How does Christ describe himself in our passage? Look at verse 18. The words of the Son of God, I have eyes like a blazing fire. Verse 23, he says, I'm the one that searches hearts and minds. I see right through you. I see through all the pretense. I see through all the facade. I see through the image. I see through the mask. I know everything about you. Friends, we we have a God who knows everything about us in every way imaginable, and the picture only gets worse. Look, Look at the very end of verse 18. I have feet like burnished bronze. They can crush you. The one who knows you because he sees you has feet that can crush you. What do we do with a God who says he's like this? What are we going to do with that? I'll come back to that in a minute. Right now I just want to say, I want to lay out my argument that we have a fundamental need to belong, but we have a paralyzing fear of being known. So what we need now is a little hope, and that's what we have, a deep hope of being seen. At the end of this letter, like at the end of all the letters, Jesus promises a reward. But in the case of Thyatira, he actually makes uh, two promises of two rewards, two things. The first one, look at verse 26. Verse 26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Isn't that something? Thyatira You've been handed off from one kingdom to another. People have attacked you. They've subjugated you. They've traded you. You feel like you've got no place, like you do not belong. I'm going to turn the tables, and I'm going to give you the authority over the nations. The very thing you're looking for to to fit in, to belong, meaning, power, whatever it is that's driving you, I'm the one that gives it to you. I'll give it to you. Everything that challenges you, every, everything that's tempting you, everything that's compromising you, everything that's enslaving you, I 
can give it to you. He says, I'm going to give you the authority over the nations. You see, Jezebel promises it, right? The, the trade guilds are promising it. In our time, it's success, power, acceptance, education. They promise it, but it never delivers. At least not the way it says it will. Jesus says, I can deliver it. But friends, you see, that, that, that's not even the real reward. That's, that's actually the, the after effect of the real reward. The real reward is in verse 28. Look at that. And I will give him the morning star. Morning star? <laughs> what, is, what is the morning star? Well, if you were here last week, you might remember um, Balaam, the, the mercenary prophet that was hired to curse God's people. But every time he opened his mouth, only blessings would come out. And his very last oracle in, in the book of Numbers chapter 24, with, with penetrating insight, this is what Balaam says in verse 17 of Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. Now, in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 16, this is what Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angels to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You see, in chapter 2, 28, it says, you will get the morning star. What Jesus says, you get me. The one who overcomes, the one who conquers, you get me, yes, you'll get all the other things that you long for. You'll get, you'll understand significance. You will have belonging. You will have meaning. But the real reward is that you get me. Well, that's pretty good. But here's the problem. How does the one with eyes like a blazing fire and feet of burnished bronze become the morning star? How can the one who sees right through you because he knows you, who's got the weight to crush you, become the hope of the morning star for you? How does the one who can melt us with his stare because he can see right through us become our great reward? How does that happen? That's the, that's the problem. How does that happen? So when we look at the cross, when you look at the cross and you see the same pair of eyes, those eyes that can see right through your soul, weeping to have you. When you see that, it changes everything. When you see those eyes that blaze with fire, slowly faint and go dim as he dies on the cross in your place. Only then will the terrifying gaze become the gaze of a savior to you. You see, our deep hope of being seen is exactly that gaze, isn't it? The gaze of someone who sees us, who knows us, and yet won't reject us. In fact, loves us. Someone who sees our pettiness, someone who sees your immaturity, your insecurities, he sees your, your trivial responses, your immaturities to one another, your slights, your angers, your selfishness, 
but still embraces you. Even more than that, sees you for more than you can see in yourself. Sees that you can be some, become something more. We can only hope to be seen that way. But here's the great news. This is why Easter matters. It's not just a hope. It is a promise that the gospel fulfills. You see, that Easter morning so long ago, or that Easter weekend so long ago, when Jesus looked at the thief on the cross right next to him, so long ago, Jesus saw him and knew him, and the man knew that he was guilty. He's even admitted that he deserved to be crushed. He just said, look, I know my needs. I've been looking for that love story. And it's led me to this cross. Just, would you just remember me? Just think of me. That's all I'm asking. And Jesus saw him, his need, saw his fears, and says, you belong with me. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Friends, in the end, the message to the church of Thyatira is the exact same message that Easter Sunday reminds us of every week, that God, he understands our needs, that he understands our fears, and he is our hope, the bright morning star. And because he is risen, he can be the bright morning star for you as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as we read this book that on first glance, we wonder, what does it have to do with us? And what does it have to do with Easter? But as we unpack it, we realize it has everything to do with both of those things. Father, you know our needs. You made us to belong. <laughs> That's the way we were designed. But because in our sin, we turned our backs on you, we desperately fear actually being known. Would you give us the, the mercy to recognize what we need to do is, is repent of, of going our own way and trusting you, longing, knowing that you are the hope that we have. And so, Father, we thank you that every year, society as a whole is at least reminded that Easter exists. But, Father, we know that Easter is every Sunday. And we thank you for that reality. And we pray, Lord, that those who may not know Jesus Christ as their bright morning star would realize that you understand their needs, their fears, and their hopes, and they can only be fulfilled in your Son. And we'll thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.